welcome any guests who are here. If there's anyone new, I would enjoy seeing like I see someone new in the back there, but if there's some new people, I would enjoy meeting you and saying hello. I want to thank Mr. Stroud for the fine sermonette. It's really good to talk about Jesus Christ because that's something that I think we did not do as much in years past. We have been doing it the last two or three years more, and one of our ministers even got upset because we were talking too much about Christ, but he's not with us, so he's not a problem anymore. We can't really talk about Jesus Christ too much in one sense, although we need to talk about his message and not just about his person, of course. And that is very, very important. Why, uh, my wife and I had a wonderful trip to Phoenix during the days of unleavened bread and then on to Florida. And uh, we everything was in well in the churches out there. And from what I've heard from Mr. Crockett on his trip, Mr. Ames, Dr. O'Neill, and all the others who were gone at various places, Mr. Apartian, the brethren around the country are still very solid and they realize that we are doing a good work and a great work. And many of them, of course, in many of the churches, I should say, they've had more visitors in the last few months, even from other Church of God groups who say, well, we realize you're doing more of the work. So they are beginning to attend with us more and more. And that's good as we get toward the end of the age. That's going to happen more. And we need to pray that God will make us worthy of that and that God will help us reach out to those people with love when they come and help them in every way we can. I would ask you very heartily, though, right now at the beginning of this sermon, in case I do forget later, please pray fervently regarding the income and regarding the co-worker letter. Our income is running as of this, as through yesterday afternoon, about one and one-half percent negative compared to last year. And that's really bad. We've always had at least 3 or 4% positive, even in bad years. But most of you know that this is the greatest recession our nation has had in 60 years. And we understand that. And lots of churches in the world, even elsewhere, are having problems. But we certainly hate to cut back. We have had to consider and even plan some cutbacks in television. We'll be announcing that later, and all the exact cuts are not in a finalized form yet, but some of you probably heard about the rumor as we hear things in the office. But we pray we won't have to do all the cuts we have in mind. If God would send us some really big offerings, which He can easily do, just when we were uh, planning to move here, why God uh, caused Raymond Jorgensen, uh, this bachelor farmer in Iowa, to give us his whole form, a farm, and all the equipment and everything, and that was over $900,000. So that helped us move here. And uh, then we had more recently, last year, Joseph Jones, a bachelor, again, with no family to leave things to. If you have a family, you may want to leave something to them, obviously, and that's necessary. But he was in that, had a long, long, wonderful life, 85 years old, but he left us his entire estate. And that helped us, and that's helped us get through the, war, uh, the, through the year so far. But we're now one-third of the year, and the income continues down. I'm worried about Mr. Ruddleston. You know, the halo around his head back there, and it's getting larger because he's losing more hair every day. The income keeps going down. And so he has to pull out his hair when the income goes down. And uh, so anyway, please pray about that, all, all sincerity. If all of us pray, God will answer. 
I remember back in Ambassador College when I was student body president for a couple of, got to be for a year and a half because Raymond Cole had a terrible kidney problem and had to be sent up to Oregon or was sent up to just pastor the Portland, the, not Portland, but Eugene Church alone, just 30 people, so it wasn't a whole lot of work, and he could rest rather than taking a heavy load to graduate. And so I got to fill out about the last half of his term, plus the following, the whole following year, and I would call the students to fast when the income was down. And really, the whole student body then, we were pretty unified, and, and we would all fast, and Annie Mann and Mr. Party and some of the others remember Mrs. Mann was the house mother for all of us, boys and girls. She's the one who would yell at the boys if they went up the wrong stairway toward the girls' floor. <laughs> we had to go up a separate floor, and the girls' floor was blocked off, you know. So Annie Mann watched over the girls and watched over us, too. She was very loving, but she was kind of crusty on the outside and very loving on the inside. But anyway... She would hear about it and fast, and then Mr. and Mrs. Lisman Sr., Dr. and Mrs. Lisman, and, uh, and uh, then uh, others, Dr. Merrill and other older members, would, would hear about it, and they would fast too. And it's amazing. There would be no additional co-worker letter, nothing else, you know what I mean, to cause extra money, and all of a sudden extra money would come in because of the prayers of these young people in Ambassador College and the immediate ones in the church who were close to us and knew about it, if we cried out to God, God would hear. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I do ask all of you here, we should be one family here at headquarters, even more than most churches. More of us see each other more often. And I certainly hope that all of you will pray about that and ask God to, to bless the work, to grant us bigger income, and to bless the co-worker letter. How many of you got your Coker letter the last couple of days? Good. Well, about, as Mr. Ames would say, 57 and two-tenths percent, it looks like, out there. <laughs> That's cute how he immediately estimates the exact percent. But anyway, <laughs> by, why, uh, anyway, I pray that you will do that. Pray for the Coker letter, that God will really bless that letter in a special way. God can bless any letter. I might write some terrible letter, and God would bless it anyway. You know what I mean? And uh, he, he does do that sometime. Uh, God does answer fervent prayers for those who ask in faith, and we do need to really understand that. My sermon today is, Do you actually live by faith? Do you actually live by faith? My mind's been on that a lot more the last several months, which you could understand, and I've been studying that. And I have reread Mr. Herbert Armstrong's old booklet. I hope maybe we should get reprints of that and somehow get this to all of you. It's a very, really wonderful booklet, just ten little pages, but it's just packed with information. So I'm not going to try to read that booklet to you, or I'll give you just one excerpt from it. But it's a very, very fine, very powerful booklet. And, of course, I've read many other things, including hundreds of scriptures about faith and reviewed things in my own life and things that I have seen and experienced and so on that help us build faith. Brethren, in our society, and all of you probably realize this, but maybe we don't think about it as much as we should, we are constantly distracted by the around we are probably more distracted from the idea of God and creation and things like that than any generation in human history. There has been no generation in human history which even approaches our generation and all the distractions of the kind that we have. 
Even a hundred years ago, a hundred and fifty years ago, they didn't have the telephone ringing and the radio blatting forth and the people next door turning the TV up or right in your own house. Someone punches the button and here comes Satan right into your house where you don't want him through television and the Internet and our young people pushing the wrong button on the Internet. And I know my wife showed me that number of years ago when we were still in San Diego because we were concerned about uh, our younger boys and their friends around. And, and she realized you could just push the wrong button and here's a whole bunch of naked people on the Internet. That's all you had to do is just push the button. And there they are in a way that never, ever could have happened before in human history. And our society has become very shallow and very worldly because of that. And it is harder for us to think about the great God up in heaven. Think about King David. Why was he so close to God? Well, many, many reasons, of course, and I've preached on that and written on that, and many of us have. But one reason was because, as he said, I look up into the heavens and, you know, God is there. And he talks about that again and again in his Psalms. He could go out at night as a young shepherd boy. He probably spent weeks out there all alone and in the Middle East and in desert-like climates, as you know, the stars come down close, so to speak, and they're really bright and vivid. And David could see those majestic stars in the heavens and sit out there and think at night and play, maybe play his instrument, uh, uh, whatever is a type of banjo or, or type of uh, a harp or whatever, but he probably even had something at times because he was very good at that. But whether he did that or not, I don't know. But he was certainly looking up at the heavens and, and thinking about God and how great God was and how great God is. We don't do that. When I grew up, all we had was radio and then the, the movies, but most of us, until we got in high school or older, our parents didn't let us go to the movies very often. We would go maybe once a week on Saturday matinee and we'd see Hopalong Cassidy chasing the Indians or something, and that was about it. No sex and not the kind of gratuitous violence that we have today. You know, in some movies my wife have seen on occasion, uh, you see, if you see the, the previews of other movies that we would not want to see, then you see a big car blown up and then uh, pretty soon a whole uh, train is blown up and Bob and all these young boys. The movies are made for 12 year, year old boys uh, just blowing up everything in sight. And uh, it's crazy. They don't have any real plot. There's no meaning to it necessarily. It's just violence and sex and sex and violence. Crazy stuff. But it's a very, it pictures a very shallow society. But when I was growing up, we had these long summer days, like the days that are beginning now. And I would sit out on the chat piles outside Joplin, Missouri, and fly a kite. Or sometimes they'd have a friend there on the next hill or something. But you'd just look up at the sky and think and think and think. No radio, no television, no Internet, no nothing to just keep their mind all jarred off on the things of the world. I spent hours like that, and my friends did too. And then at night we would play kick the can or hide and seek, but we'd out under the stars and hear the crickets. And then part of the evenings we'd be collecting fireflies, uh, you know, and put them in jars and this kind of thing, all concerned with creation. We'd be hearing the crickets and the frogs and so on. An entirely different society. Many of you older people remember times that like that. But our younger kids, all they do is push the button, and here comes sex and violence and sex and violence. And Satan, the devil, is interfering in our lives and destroying the concept of a Father in heaven, the Creator of heaven and earth. 
And so it really hurts our faith, and we need to realize that, how we're a faithless generation, as Jesus said. So we need to understand this. Turn now, if you would, to Ephesians. The first scripture I want to turn to, brethren, is Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Just writing to these Gentiles in Ephesus, Paul said, And you he made alive, that is, spiritually, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He's a prince, the prince of this world, the spirit, a great spirit being who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan is busy. He works. He never gets tired. He is the prince of the power of this earth's atmosphere. He's here, and as Mr. Armstrong used to tell us, he broadcasts. He broadcasts wrong attitudes, and he stirs people up and directs them in the wrong way. And so we need to understand that we're living in that world. And brethren, we really need faith in God in order to get through the perilous times ahead. Satan is the god of this world. And as I wrote in the Corker letter, our nation and the Western world in general is now going through a sea change. The term sea change means a major, massive change in a whole way of life. And frankly, that's what we're going through. We have an extremely liberal president with an extremely liberal Congress backing him up. Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and all these others are right in there pushing him toward the super liberal agenda. And we have that on us. And beside that, which is not their fault totally, it's partly their fault, it's partly them too, of course. They were pushing that as the ones in Congress, the spending, along with President Bush and his people. But now we're in the worst financial crisis in 60 years. These two things are changing the whole face of the United States of America. A lot of you realize that. Within five years, I think everyone will realize this nation will never be the same again. It will not be our, our whole way of approaching things. The homosexuals begin to take over blatantly over and over. Now we have about three or four states that are already allowing gay marriage and more are talking about it. The governor of New York is talking about pushing it. So when the Empire State used to be our biggest state, when they get on that and bring it in, then it will sweep quickly across the country because Vermont and Massachusetts and Iowa already have it. California almost had it, thanks to the California Liberal Ninth Circuit Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, but their voters rejected that which is amazing, but they did have enough courage. And, of course, the, the liberals are bringing that on the Mormons because there are a lot of Mormons out there and some other religious groups got together to block it, the Mormons and the Catholics and so on. A lot of the Protestants are so gutless, they don't try to block anything anymore. They just go with the flow. And many of these same Protestant ministers, by the way, brethren, that you've read about, and I'm not exaggerating, I am personally quite positive. I won't name their names. That's not important. Some of them may die before the time. But many of these ministers, when this ecumenical movement gets started more, and especially the Catholics start taking over, they're going to come right back home to, to Rome. They will. They don't care. They don't really have any spiritual understanding themselves. They will go right back with the majority, and they will fold themselves right back into the great mother church that God talks about in Revelation chapter 17. And that's not 20 or 30 years off. That's probably 5 or 10 years off or less. Those things are going to start happening very, very soon. 
Our society will not be the same. And we're going to go through some very bad times with drought and famine, raging disease epidemics. As you've heard, there's already this swine flu thing that's coming down from Mexico, all connected with hogs. And God tells us we're not to eat the hogs and be around hogs. Why did Jesus let the demons go into the 2,000 hogs there? Well, he knew they shouldn't have those hogs anyway. He was the creator, and they shouldn't have been raising all those hogs. So he let those 2,000 hogs go down and drown themselves. He wasn't unaware of what might happen. But these things are going to get much, much worse than they have ever. And as we live into the end times, we're going to need faith. To even some of you brethren, some of you brethren around the world, I'm not trying to scold you here at the headquarters church. I don't mean that. But I know that we're very human. And having been in the church almost 60 years, I've seen how even the ones you think are converted are not really converted or very shallowly converted, and they fall away too. And I've experienced that with evangelists and leading pastor ministers and men I taught and thought were converted and were no more converted than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny. They were just not converted at all. And I mean it. So don't he that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We've all got to be sure that we know God. But to many of our own brethren, and certainly me people in the world that think they know God, they don't know God. They know about God, but God is not real to them. And they don't really trust in God. So we've got to be sure that we know God and that we trust in God. We're going to have to have faith and courage in the years just ahead. And again, I don't mean 20 or 30 years. I mean, you know, 5 to 15 years from now as these things come down on us because the devil is very, very powerful. Jesus said, The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Remember that statement in John near the end of, of the Gospel of John. So we do need to understand. Notice back in Revelation chapter 3, brethren, Notice back in Revelation chapter 3 now, and a very important verse back here. It's talking, as you know, to the Philadelphia church and how we're to go through the open doors and we're to persevere. And he says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere. We've got to keep on in the way of the Philadelphia church to keep on in that overall approach that Mr. Armstrong taught us, have faith and trust in God to go through the open doors, to have the right kind of church government, which is the first thing he starts off with, the key of David, which has everything to do with right government. And he says, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. What is that hour of trial? Most of you know. The hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. That hour of trial is the coming great tribulation Jesus described back in Matthew 24. It's going to come on the whole world. Why? To test those who dwell on the earth. And brethren, it's going to test us too. It's going to test us too. It will test you and me. Will we pass that test? Will we have that real contact with God and that commitment to our Father in heaven so that we will pass that test? So we do need to really develop the understanding and the real love that uh, Mr. Straub is talking about and the faith and the courage to be able to pass that test in the years to come. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 now, and I'm going to get a little bit of this uh, 
tea here that they fixed for me. In Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning in verse 37, the Apostle Paul wrote to these early Christians, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Yes, it'll seem quick when it finally happens and starts to one thing impacts on the other. I know we're waiting and waiting. I understand that. A lot of people think it's never going to happen. But when the final events start to happen, the indication is that there'll be one problem piling right on top of the other. Now the just shall live by faith. And that's something that's repeated two or three times in your New Testament, as you know. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does not want us to draw back. And brethren, we all need to learn to live by faith, you and me, in every single part of our lives. We don't just live by faith when we're supposed to be healed. We've got to live by faith in the kind of job that we take and the kind of work we do in that job because we love God, we trust in Him. We have faith that God will take care of us as Mr. Stroud did when they were going to fire him. He had to have faith in God that He would take care of him. We have to have faith in God to try to do the best we can in every phase of our lives. We have to faith in God to trust that He knows what He's talking about in regard to even the diet we eat. You know, just getting down to small things. Did, did God know that hogs were bad for you? Yes, He knew that 6,000 years ago. <laughs> and that's why about 5,000 years ago, or whenever it was when the flood came, why God told them to take one pair of the unclean animals, or was it two, and seven pairs of the clean animals. You see what I mean? Even back there, there was the clean and the unclean. And scientists are beginning to realize that meat from these unclean animals is not good. They don't fully understand that yet. Not long ago, some of the scientists were making fun of circumcision. Now there have been great articles come out showing that actually millions and millions of people would die in Africa and elsewhere without circumcision. It saves millions of lives. And they're beginning to realize what a tremendous health thing that is. Not a spiritual thing, but a health thing. And then they realize, uh, again, I was reading an article by a lady, uh, some, well, just the other day, I may have had it in my briefcase, I don't think Monica's filed that yet, but anyway, it's written by some lady and a, a Christian magazine, I think it was from World Magazine, but she was talking about in the early 1950s how the doctors were making fun of uh, women nursing their babies, and, and they had this better way. But now they realize, no, mother's milk is the best. What God had at the beginning, that is the best. God knew what was right. And the more you look at those things and learn, and the more scientists get true knowledge, they'll realize that the best food is the food God made if it's from good soil, which it often isn't today, and if it's not been sprayed and messed up and polluted as it is today. But good food from good soil and good water that's not been sprayed it's food the way God made it. You see what I mean? That turns out always to be the best food. If you have faith in God, you see what I mean? And all that that implies, you will know that. Of course, what God did was right. That permeates everything you do. God knows and He is right. 
and we put our faith and trust in Him in every phase and facet of our lives. And so we live by faith. And that's what we've got to learn to do. We need to do that as a church. And I hope all of you here in this room and all you brethren around the world will try to do that. Let's become a church based on faith. If we do that, we're going to have far more blessings. We're going to have more miracles. We're going to have more healings. And we're going to have more power in the work of God. And you will see that to the degree we learn to really trust in God and walk and live by faith. Turn now to chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Paul continues, But without faith it is impossible to please God. You can't please God unless you have faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now the devils believe in God and tremble, as God tells us in the book of James. So just believe there is a God. That's not enough. You've got to do what God says. And you've got to believe that he'll reward those who diligently seek him. But remember all these statements, those who diligently. Mr. Armstrong used to say that one of the greatest lacks of people in their prayers, he felt, in the church of God was that they did not put their hearts in their prayers. And he would often quote the Moffat version and Moffat's Bible translation. And other translations have it, but that was the more modern translation in his day back in uh, Hosea 7:14, For my people do not cry to me from their hearts, I think it is in the King James, but the modern translation, they do not put their hearts in their prayers. You see, we, we sort of pray, and I learned to pray now, lay me down to sleep, and you know, all those kid prayers, but we often, even today, many of you may not get down as much as you should. Don't put it on. I don't mean to try to play act. God knows who's sincere and who's not. We can't play with God. But if you mean it, learn to ask God for that zeal to where you're praying with your heart and maybe your whole body's shaking and your, 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 mind, your, your, your mind is totally absorbed. Father, help me! And you begin to cry out to God and you mean it from the depths of your being. He wants you to put your hearts in your prayers and then He will be with us and we'll learn to do this. There have been some articles come out recently about, and some of you read them, I'm sure, about the electrical grid of the United States being in danger. Foreign terrorists have the map of it, and they could literally shut us down. And that would be really dangerous for our, our defense. And, of course, in the winter, it would cause people to freeze. In the summer, it would cause a lot of food to perish very quickly. And it would have those bad things. But one good thing could come out of it, frankly, if you think about it, one very good thing. <laughs> no television, no computers, no radio, no telephone, it would be quiet. No, it would be quiet. And what would people do if we were shut down millions of people, hundreds of millions in the Western world, especially if it affected all of us, they would begin to think, what's going on? And over a period of weeks or months, if that happened, they would think, why am I here? What's all about? They would have time to think. Many of them, for the first time in their lives, continual meditation on deep things, the reasons for, for life and so on. It would do them a lot of good in that way as long as, of course, we won't want people to freeze or, you know, suffocate but without air conditioning. Some people might have to move down south or move up north or whatever if it didn't change for a while. But anyway, just think about it. Things like that were going to happen, frankly, before the end. That's one reason I've told you, and I think we've all told you, and I've tried to write the brethren 
to get extra food, dried foods and extra water in your basement or, or your, your uh, garage or wherever you can keep the extra bottled water, get extra flashlights and extra uh, candles and so on. So when these things happen, and they will happen, God's people can survive a little bit longer until maybe the authorities would get the lights back on again or get some food to you. I'm not saying to save up enough for years. Some of the Mormons or some of the uh, uh, survivalists, I should call them, not the normal Mormons, but they have a whole cave full of food out somewhere, and they're going. They have their guns, and you know what I mean. They're going to take care of themselves. You know, you're not going to take care of yourself in that way. But it's good to be prudent, and yet even then be willing to share. If your next door neighbor comes and he's starving, you know, don't cho- shoot him with your gun. Uh, help him, <laughs> help him, and God will then help you. Some of these survivalists, though, that's their attitude, you know. They're going to be in their cave. If anyone comes around, they may just shoot them. So that's not our approach at all. But, brethren, we we do have information overload overload in our society. All these noise, noise coming at us. This idea and that idea and these pictures on TV and this noise and this idea through the Internet and so on, just distracting our mind from God and from the purpose of human existence. So we've got to have time to sit down and think. And God may give us that time uh, in a way that we had not anticipated. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is another reason the new King James is better than the old King James, because it is up to date. And the way it's translated, are perishing. They haven't perished yet, but they are in process of perishing. Whose minds the God of this age, not the God of all ages, but the God of this 6,000 years of human experience under Satan the devil before Christ comes back, the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So God has permitted it for 6,000 years for the God of this age to blind people so they don't understand. He is the God of this age, and He's broadcasting wrong ideas constantly, and that's one reason if we're absorbed in the media, watching television or listening to the radio or on the Internet too much, we're drinking in constantly of wrong attitudes that hurt us. And they've hurt many of our children and grandchildren immeasurably, immeasurably, in a way that are almost, you know, incalculable until Christ comes back and straightens it out. But think about that. We've got to really allow our, not allow ourselves to be distracted from God by these things from Satan the devil. Are you growing in faith? Think about that yourself as we go along. Are you growing in faith personally? Here are some keys to do that, to build faith. I want to give you some basic keys. I could give you 12 or 20 or some other good number. I just have four basic keys here today. The first one, which is extremely important, is to build the habit. I found, brethren, I'm a creature of habit. Now, maybe most of you, or maybe some of you are not, but I, I know most of you are, and I've heard many say that and read many articles on it. If I get in the habit of when I get up 
you know, do certain things. It just comes easy. I just immediately go in the dressing room and put on my, my prayer pants, as I call it. I don't wear my best suit, and, and then I can brush my teeth and shave and not get shaving cream all over the the, the or prayer pants, I call them, and then I go pray and right after I get awake from shaving, and then I don't wonder, am I going to pray today? I, I, I pray before I eat. I don't eat anything until I pray. So I, I've got to starve, or I better pray first. You see what I mean? It, gives, it helps build a good habit that way. And uh, so you get in habits. So you need to build a habit of regular, intensive Bible study. Not Bible reading, but Bible study. My old Methodist grandmother, who is a wonderful lady who helped me a lot, and she did study the Bible, I think, intensively at times. But God didn't call her, but she'd get me to look at the upper room. It was a little old thin thing, and, and they had a little saying for today and then one verse and prayer for today. And, and as you've heard me say, they'd have something about uh, this young reporter from Britain uh, going off to Africa, and he was so zealous, and he was going to find this famed Dr. Livingston, and he comes in the clearing of the African village and meets this old man, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And uh, I guess I can't remember his name now, but he went on and on, and he went through the jungles, and so must we, my friends, be like, uh, what's his name, and keep on going, and that, that was their little lesson for today. Well, as I told my grandmother after I'd read those things for years as a kid, and God began to call me, I said, Grandmother... I know you mean well, and I know this is interesting, but I said you could read all that stuff until your eyes fell out of your head, and you would still never begin to start to understand the Bible, because it just gives little nice sayings here and there. They don't ever explain the purpose of God, the reason we're alive, that God is reproducing Himself. They don't explain the Ten Commandments and why we ought to keep them and what they really mean. They don't understand the plan of God through the holy days. They don't understand the prophecies or why these things are happening. Nothing. It's just little sentimental thoughts over and over and over and over again. What we need to do is to really study this book. Read it carefully. Learn to read right through. Uh, best to start in the New Testament, so if some of you are new, because you might get bored in the Old because you don't understand. But later you can go back in the Old if you learn to read the uh, He Begot, He Begot, He Begot, or the years of something more quickly. You can go back after years, and you'll understand they have more meaning than maybe you thought at first. But read right through then the Old Testament. But I began to read through the New Testament when I was first being called, and I would read two or three chapters and mark it with a red and blue pencil, a pen. One end of the pen, uh, pencil was red, the other blue, and I'd mark and have my system of marking. I tend to mark things too much, but uh, they're, they're marked at least, and I know what the marks mean. My wife says, you cover it all up where you can't even see it. <laughs> my Bible is overmarked, but I know what it means. Anyway... Learn to do that and get your own system to where we get the Bible becomes a familiar friend. And you read through Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John and the book of Acts and then right on through the New Testament where you know that book and you know what it says. I remember when I was first being called, uh, talking to a number of ministers and then later on uh, baptizing tours. Here's Raymond McNair and me and later Burke McNair and Herman He and I all across the country as young men aged 21, 22, 23 on those three summer tours respectively. We were kids in a sense, and yet we were meeting men that were 45 to 65 or 70 years old who had been in ministers all their lives. 
And I'm not bragging. We weren't terribly smart. I was never the valedictorian or salutatorian or even proposed to be such. We were above average, I guess, but we knew the truth. We were taught the truth. And we would shut their mouths. They would get nervous and get up and leave because they knew a little thin line of Scripture. And if you get them off that little thin line of Scripture, Mr. Armstrong used to tell the joke about the drunk in London when they used to have heavy fogs back in London before they stopped the trash burning and the incinerator and all that. You've heard about the terrible London fog. It isn't as bad now as it used to be. But this drunk was wobbling around and he kept bumping into this telephone pole. He'd start out and he'd go back and bump into it again. And he said, finally, lost, lost in an impenetrable forest. And uh, <laughs> and he says, that's, that's how these ministers are. They're lost in an impenetrable forest. They don't understand the Bible. You get them off this little thin line of what they understand and you get them back to Habakkuk or, or Nahum or Nehemiah or somewhere and they're lost. They don't understand it. God has not opened their minds. So we're not trying to make fun of them, and I don't mean it in that way, but God has not opened their minds. Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they will fall in the ditch together. And so God will call them later. And some of them may be better Christians than we are when they're called, so far as that's concerned. And we need to understand that and be humble in the right way. And yet realize we have the blessing if God is opening your minds, and most of you here, He has, or you wouldn't come here on a consistent basis. You can understand if you cry out. Learn to really study this book. Drink in of it. And as it tells us back in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As you feed on Christ, as you feed on Christ and drink into this book over and over, you will grow in faith. And that is a very, very important concept. Back in First or Second Timothy three, if you would turn there to Second Timothy chapter three, and you turn to verse sixteen, God tells us through Paul, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as the Hebrew or the Greek, I mean, and inspired in the Greek language, is God breathed. That's the literal meaning. God breathed. Now, these modern scholars don't believe that. I know that. I've read their stuff. I know one of them who's written books on it, and, and uh, his best friend is the, uh, one of his best friends is one who even writes more books than he does up here at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the main one. But they both write all these books questioning the Bible, questioning Jesus, questioning all this stuff. But most of you know, and without trying to prove it here, as I've seen in 60 years, when you put the Bible to the test, God comes through. God's Word is true. It's inspired of God. And one way you can know that, of course, is by answered prayer, which many of you have had, but another is by all these prophecies. God gave prophecies that the historians have to admit were given ahead of time, and they happened. It happened on ancient Egypt. It happened on ancient Rome. It happened in the revivals of modern Rome. It is happening now. And in Mr. Gwynn's wonderful book that I think was on the, on the beast, I forget. No, I think this was the one on American Britain and Prophecy, but he talks about this newspaper editor in Tennessee. And he was talking about the fact that when the Eastern European nations began to break away from the Soviet Union, the news pundits were astonished. They didn't know that. None of them said that was happening. How could this happen? He said, I was not astonished because I'd been reading the writings of Herbert W. Armstrong for years. 
And Mr. Armstrong had been saying that this outside man who had no connection with the Church of God wrote in this small paper in uh, Tennessee. Maybe Mrs. O'Gwen remember how he happened to get... I like to talk to you about how did he get that clipping, but he got that clipping out of that paper. And that was inspiring because many people, uh, many of us heard him say those things ahead of time, Mr. Armstrong, and they happened. And I've told you how when I was with Mr. Armstrong and Dick and Mrs. Armstrong back in 1954, he thundered at those people over there in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and, and, and Glasgow, and then down in, uh, in uh, Manchester, and then down in London. He said, if you British people don't repent and turn back to God, God will take away your sea gates. God will take away the British Empire. You'll have no British Empire. And he said it loud and strong. Well, God did do that. That's all happened. Mr. Armstrong is dead, but that happened, and it's still happening. Out of about ten major sea gates, only two are left. The Falkland Islands and the Strait of Gibraltar are still controlled by Britain. You mark my words, at least one of those will probably disappear or be taken away from Britain, I mean, in the next few years, maybe both of them. But it's all happening it's not some accident that Mr. Armstrong could predict these big, massive things, which he did, that the Berlin Wall would come down, the Eastern European nations would break free from the Soviet Union. No one understood that except God's true servant, Mr. Armstrong, because he understood the keys of Bible prophecy. God is real. These are not tiny, isolated things. These are massive things affecting massive nations and hundreds of millions of people. So anyway, it's good to know that the Bible really is inspired and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, to correct us, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You don't need the writings of Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian scientists, and you don't need Ellen G. White's writings, and you don't need Joseph Smith's writings about the uh, golden tablets he supposedly discovered <laughs> up in a, under a stump up in up, upper New York State. If you read about that background of the Mormons, you wonder how on earth could so many people believe in that? Because it's so silly. They have these things he supposedly discovered, and of course they proved that that couldn't have happened and no doubt didn't happen, and he made contradictory statements later. But the things he supposedly discovered were written in 1611 English. But this was in the 1800s. Was God writing? Did God think the 1611 English was inspired or something? Of course not. But just, just a lot of odd things are out there in the world. But there's one book that doesn't have any crazy stuff, and that's what we call the Holy Bible. And we've got to really study this Bible. And I mean read it and make it part of our lives to where we build faith through doing that. Turn back to John chapter 6 at this point, if you would. And I've given you this many times, but I'll keep on. It's one of the richest parts of the entire Bible, that John is a very powerful book. Jesus said in John 6, verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In other words, you've got to totally drink in of Jesus Christ. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. If you feed on the Bible, and the Bible is coursing through your mind, you begin to think like God thinks, because this book is the revelation of the God who gives you the life, the breath of life that you breathe. This is his book, his revelation, the way he thinks. 
he who feeds on me. Verse 63, uh, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Well, we're all involved in flesh. We need to have enough to eat, and, and, and yet it's not going to last without the Spirit. We'll all die. We'll be back in the dust. Dust thou art, and unto the dust shall you return. So it's not profitable forever. It's just for a little while. The flesh profits nothing, spiritually, of course. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. The words in this book are spirit essence. They are true. They're just like the law of gravity. If you break them, they will break you. They're living things, just as surely as the laws of, of science, the laws of, of nature. So we want to understand and to feed on the Bible. As you read the Bible, think about the wonderful examples over and over and over. I could go on and on, but just think about Joseph and how he had to be faithful to God, and God tested him and tested him. God does not always answer right away. He doesn't answer right away, but after 17 years, he became the, in one way, what, the second leading man on the face of the earth. The, the Egyptian empire at that time was the greatest empire, and Pharaoh actually let him run the empire, just run the whole thing, if you read the story. And so God gave him tremendous blessings by trusting in God and knowing that the God of Abraham was there. You see how God dealt with Moses. And Moses could have been a big shot in Pharaoh's army, but he chose to suffer with the people of God. And then God used him so powerfully to literally part the waters of the Red Sea and do this and do that. And here is a man of great humility, though. He yelled at the people sometime, Why have you done this? And yet God tells us back there, I think it's in Numbers 12, 3, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Before God, he, he just said, just like Jesus, no doubt, not my will, but thy will be done. And God used him, blessed him, empowered him, guided him, and tremendous miracles occurred over and over. Here's a lonely shepherd boy out under the stars at night, King David, and crying out to God. And yet God gave him victory after victory and miracles and intervened. And it shows what God can do for one who turns his life over to God. There's no limit to what you can do if you give your life to God. You read about the Apostle Paul and how he certainly went through trials. God doesn't say we won't have any trials. And he had ailments and he had imprisonments and beatings and everything. And yet God blessed him and used him so powerfully all over the world to heal his, his even to this day. His letters are read and honored, even though people don't understand them, <laughs> by hundreds of millions of people. And in tomorrow's world, he will have tremendous power. But remember, two or three times he got in terrible trouble. For instance, a couple times he was thrown in jail. And then we find an angel got him out. And they couldn't build a jail to keep Paul. They, couldn't be, they can't build a jail to keep one of us if we trust in God. It, it's impossible. God will intervene powerfully because he is the God of creation. He is El Shaddai, Almighty God. So the first key to really build faith, living faith, is to study, build, develop the habit of deep, continuous Bible study. Do it on a regular basis. Really study and read carefully and think about it and go over and over the Bible. Now, the second key ties in with the first, but I want you to get it because otherwise we don't do this, and that is to meditate and that's where I think I've been somewhat weak in the past. I haven't done that as much as I should, and I've been doing that more this last 
several months, but meditate on the Bible. It's not that I never did it. I don't mean to say that. I'd be lying. I did, but I think we all need to just slow down. God has certainly let me slow down. If I get going too fast, I fall over. So I have to slow down, <laughs> physically speaking. And that helps me to be more humble and just think more deeply. But at any rate, meditate. Just think, what does this really mean? And try to go over and over. You're sitting there in the saddle, so to speak, with Abraham and his nephew Lot is is kidnapped, you know, by these armies. He said, let's ride. You mean like John Wayne? Well, it's a different attitude than John Wayne, but God gave them the victory. And then he comes back and God brought back who? Everybody, all their wives, all their children, everything came back. And then God used, or Abraham honored El Shaddai. He honored the God of the Old Testament who became Jesus Christ by giving him a tithe of all. Yet you have all these modern smart alecks who come up with all these articles saying, well, you know, the Bible just teaches tithing of the, of the agricultural stuff. How ridiculous. If you read the whole Bible, it doesn't say that at all. Here's Abraham, the father of the faithful. Does he just tithing a few things like that? No, frankly, he was tithing all, all this gold and silver and all the other stuff they got back from these other people. But at any rate, you meditate on the Bible and the examples in the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think about them. And then, brethren, meditate on the healings and the miracles in the Bible and then meditate on the miracles and healings today. I want to add that. You meditate on the Bible, think about it over and over and meditate on the blessings and the healings we've had today. And some of you say, well, we don't have as many as we should, so we're really bad. Well, yes, we are. But I gave you this earlier, but I do want to remind you of this. So turn with me now to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, if you turn there. And you'll see how Jesus came back home to his village there in Nazareth. And they said in verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Who is he? They were offended at him. But Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. A true servant of God may have some honor, but right in the midst of his own family, they don't think he's anything big. They, they see all of his faults, and so they can't get excited and have that deep respect as much. Verse 5, Now he, even who was this he? El Shaddai in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He could do no mighty work there. He says he could not. What's wrong with him? Because of their unbelief, it says, except he healed, laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And if you turn to Matthew thirteen fifty-eight, Matthew thirteen fifty-eight, it makes it even plainer. He could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. It says it even clearer in Matthew's account. So understand that it wasn't Jesus' fault. There was an atmosphere of cynicism, an atmosphere of doubt, and even the Son of God was not able to do powerful miracles in that place and that time because of their unbelief. So, brethren, that's why I really urge you, I implore you, I pray for you, and I hope you'll pray for me and for one another. Let's build in this church of God an atmosphere of faith where we begin to radiate faith in God absolute faith and trust in the great God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Jesus, the God of the Bible. We've got to build that faith. That's so important to build that atmosphere of faith. And I hope that you will 
try to do that. God wants us to do that. So we've got to have that or we will not have these kind of miracles that we should have. But brethren, uh, another thing I'd like to mention here is in verse uh, 41, Mark 6, 41. You remember that Jesus uh, broke the uh, two fish and five loaves and fed 5,000 people and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments left over and he fed 5,000 and again Matthew's account says beside women and children. So there may have been fifteen or 20,000 people he fed. A man, just a whole little town full of people. And then he went into the boat to the other side of the lake and when he had sent them away he departed to the mountain to pray. And or he made his disciples get into the boat. And then he himself went up on the side of the hill all alone under the stars and when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, this big uh, lake, uh, which I have been on and swam in a couple times, called the Sea of Galilee or Lake of Genesaret or Sea of Tiberias that had all three names. When evening came, he was alone on the land. He'd been up there praying for hours, apparently, and I think he no doubt had. And when he saw them straining at rowing, maybe a tip of the moonlight was, he saw this little boat bouncing out there and the wind was against them, other accounts tell us, and uh, they couldn't make much progress. And so he came to them walking on the sea. How could he do that? Because he had total faith and because he's the one that made the sea in the first place, why would he have a problem with that? And you know, these things have to be real to us. Think about it. That wouldn't it should be difficult for the one who made the whole universe to walk on the sea but he walked on the sea and they were all upset and scared what's going on and he came up close and be of good cheer it's me he said don't worry and then he went up into the boat to them and the wind had been against them blowing and blowing and their boat was rocking and they couldn't make any progress and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled and some of the commentaries say this is a very strong expression. It says about four different things. They were greatly, greatly amazed beyond measure and marveled. They were really shaken by this. Why should they be so shaken by this? Why were they shaken? For, verse 52 is the answer, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Have you understood about the loaves? Think about it, brethren. Every one of you in this room, think about it. Have you understood about the loaves? Do you meditate on what has really happened? Do you try to ask questions? Ask me later if you want to and other ministers about some of these things. Did Mr. Armstrong really say those things? Have these things happened in our time? Yes, they have. Liars don't get into God's kingdom and I will not gain any points with God by lying to you. But I told you what I heard Mr. Armstrong say in 1954, several times in these different places, there won't be any more British Empire unless you people repent and turn back to the God of the Bible. Was the British Empire some little thing, you young people? No, it was a huge thing, young people, one of the biggest empires, in fact, the biggest empire in human history. They used to say the sun would never set on the British Empire. How could this old man say that? Because he was a servant of the living God, that's why. And because they were turning away from God and now there is no British Empire. And I grew up hearing him say these things long before they happened. What about all the other things you've heard us say? I've told you the story of Howard Clark, how he was injured in the Korean War. 
were shrapnel and completely paralyzed. And I think Mrs. Apartin was there and, and saw Howard along. And I, you, you were there, Mr. Apartin, before he died and saw him sitting right over here. We would see him from our point of view of the stage in the Shakespeare Club sitting in his wheelchair. They say, well, he maybe didn't go to the doctor. Some smart ladies would say, you, you, you made him trust in God. No, we didn't. He'd been to the best doctors in naval and marine hospitals all over the world. They treated him, treated him, treated him, giving him everything. He was completely a paraplegic. He could hardly move. And I personally baptized him and had to have two men help me. He was so heavy because he couldn't eat. Lift him over and lift him into that little baptistry, you know, at the bottom of the steps there and and. uh what we call the lower gardens there at the college. And I knew him very, very well. God Almighty healed him supernaturally over Pentecost in 1958, just before Dick Armstrong died. And we don't know fully why God let Dick Armstrong die, but it was like God was saying, Dick is okay, because he gave Dick three unusual miracles right before he died. And that was the most powerful one of all. A man who had been paraplegic for years and suddenly over Pentecost weekend, and I've told you the story, I better not go through the rest of it, how I said, can you, can, he says, you want to see me walk, you remember? He said, yeah, he smiled, and I smiled, and now he, he kind of grinned. He knew what I wanted, so he got up and started walking around. And that very autumn, or late summer, I should say, the very night my son Michael was to be born, my wife was urging me to get away to so Mike could be born. And, and uh, I, I was going through the reception line for the wedding. And here was Howard Clark carrying one child in each arm, kind of bouncing along and laughing, the man who couldn't even get out of a wheelchair. And it made tears come to my eyes. Wow! God healed that man right over that Pentecost weekend. I can never forget that. And hundreds of us knew about that. That was not done in a corner. Ask Mrs. and Mrs. Aparty. They knew Howard Clark and saw him and knew what happened. And many others are around that no doubt remember uh, that occasion. Uh, then there was a, this little girl, uh, the daughter of Dennis Brady, my married student's little daughter. And you've heard me how she... I've told you how he came and it was late to freshman class and said, my daughter's dying of the fatal variety of spinal meningitis. And I'm a news fiend. I read papers too much, but I'd read about that. The fatal variety of spinal meningitis was going around, and she hadn't gone to some chiropractor. Her parents had taken her to a medical doctor. They had blood tests, urine tests, other tests. She had the fatal variety of spinal meningitis, and I prayed for her with all my heart because I had a little daughter, and I was touched and prayed more fervently than usual. But God heals and God healed that little girl. I've told you the story about the lady with the withered arm. And Raymond Manera and I met her on the baptizing tour. I think it was in Kansas back in 1951. Her arm was just used to be hanging like a rope, about one-third the normal size of an arm. And she told us after we had baptized her, we were just starting to leave. She had nothing to gain by it, telling us this story, just as we were to leave. She was not Pentecostal hoop and holler, nothing like that. And her Baptist friend was there, because I guess she didn't want to meet these strange young men from Mr. Armstrong. You know, she wanted a female companion along, so she brought her friend. I guess her husband was busy on the farm. But God caused that withered arm to grow right out after she got the anointed cloth from Mr. Armstrong. And uh, we've had a minister in one of the other Church of God troops who had the fatal variety of, of uh, malaria, and uh, God uh, healed him through my prayers. 
We've had other people healed back in Texas. There was a little girl that was dying, and she had been reduced to four food groups, and she was losing weight and dying. And my wife kept talking to her and said, well, have my husband anoint her. We knew that there was a great weakness there. A lot of the ministers, even the ministers there, did not all believe in healing. I'm not saying none of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And Cheryl kept saying, well, well, ask my husband to come and anoint you. And she never did. And finally, she talked a lot to the woman. The daughter was getting right down to the doctors and told her the little girl was going to die. And Cheryl, my wife is not perfect, and I'm not perfect, but she began to pray fervently because they were next-door neighbors there for a while at Big Sandy. When we lived in the smaller house, and we let the McCulloughs live, keep in the big house till they were going on to South Africa. So we were next-door neighbors for a while, and she got to know this woman very well. And she prayed, and she said, Father, if it's your will, cause uh, her to call me right now. And the phone rang, and she says her name. I better not, I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot here, but she called. And she said, my husband will be right over. And so she she had been fasting. She'd been more zealous in this than I had because I had been fasting about it. I'd been praying for others and the whole work. But she concentrated on that one thing. And I went over and then anointed this little girl. And I noticed when I finished, I normally have talks first. I think it's better to leave and not get your mind off that and on a lot of just worldly things before you leave. So I usually anoint people and then leave right away. So we have her mind on that. But I stayed there just a few minutes, maybe five or seven minutes, and I noticed the parents were sort of, uh, had a little look, a, a smile, or I thought, well, I guess they, they think she'll be healed. But later, one or two days later, uh, they told me that she was healed right then. And the mother sensed that because she felt her relax. Until that time, the little girl had been like this all the time. Her stomach was knotted up. She had diarrhea and vomiting and diarrhea and vomiting over and over, and her body was just going right down. She felt the little girl relax, and she sensed the girl was healed, but they didn't say she was healed until later, till they had more time, you know. And by the next, by one or two days later, she was totally healed. That's one reason I got kicked out of Big Sandy, by the way. They, they told me the main reason was because I did not go along with the changes. I'd been the deputy chancellor, and I did not go along with the changes. That's for sure. There are liberal changes. But when I anointed that little girl and urged the parents later to trust in God again, about three years later, uh, they didn't like that either. But that's another story. The girl was healed supernaturally by God Almighty. I could go on and on with other accounts of other people that have been healed in our time. And a lot of you know them. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, we have uh, here a, an account that I put in an article that I wrote about a year and a half ago in the, in the Living Church News. And it was about a member in our Joplin, Missouri, familiar to me, of course, Church of God. And they write... From this lady whose husband was healed, quote, We would like to thank everyone for all the prayers and wonderful cards for Jim. Jim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Most of you know that pancreatic cancer is nearly always a death sentence once they get that cancer. The doctors gave Jim two to three months to live. Jim was anointed by the local ministers and Mr. Meredith. I happened to be there visiting, and we prayed for him together. Jim's cancer has gone into remission. He was diagnosed last feast. Thanks. 
Jim and Marla Tallman and family. So that's the letter. And we've had a more recent letter about a... Uh, and I apologize, uh, and I don't know as I have the very latest one trying to get everything together to go here, but it tells about this person being healed, and we had the original letter, and Mr. Crockett gave me the follow-through letter, and I got it mixed up in my haste to get here. I, everything takes more time for me to get ready to come, and I can't even button the buttons at the last minute. I'll have to have Cheryl button some buttons because my left hand is shaking, and I can't do it. It's a good thing my wife is dressed. She tried to get me to... Uh, to fasten a, a little hook back here on something, and I couldn't do it. So I guess someone else got that. <laughs> but I have to go. I live in a different world where I'm kind of fall over and my hand is shaking, so it takes, takes time. But anyway, there is an emergency situation. This email came a, a few days ago with Mil Mitchell Schur, S-H-U-R, who is a young adult around 23 attending the LCG in Columbia, Missouri. Overnight, Mitchell appears to have had a trauma to his brain during his sleep, and it caused him to be non-responsive this morning when his roommate tried to wake him. He was rushed to St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City. Well, Columbia is where the University of Missouri is, and Jefferson City is the capital, so they must have had a better hospital there for some reason, and is in a coma and on 100% oxygen. His condition was such that he apparently was unable to swallow through the night, and his lungs filled up with fluid. Consequently, he is also diagnosed with acute, acute pneumonia. This is a very serious condition, and without God's immediate intervention, it really does not look good. Please pray about this for Mitchell. That's from our one of our leading men. I think he's a deacon, Steve Bodie, back in the Kansas City Church, who's helped us a lot on the Internet in the times past. Then we had a follow-through email saying, now this man, this young man, is totally healed. So he is healed. And I'm sorry I don't have that right here to read it. But he has been healed just in the last, what, the last two or three days, I guess, just in the last 48 hours, apparently. This young man has been supernaturally healed. So God's people did pray, and he has been healed of this terrible condition where he was virtually dead and uh, in a coma. So God does heal, brethren, and God does intervene. Our God is alive. It's just that like the people in Nazareth, they lack faith. And Jesus could not do any big miracles because of their unbelief. So we don't have the degree of healings and the wonderful miracles because we do lack faith as a church. And we've got to build more faith. And I urge you to do that. I urge you to do that. This is a cr crusade we should be on to develop more faith. And God will certainly bless us if we try to develop this atmosphere of faith. Now, the third key to building faith, the third key is fervent prayer and fasting. Fervent prayer and fasting. Turn back to Luke chapter 18. And here I have used this a number of times, so I'll just read it a little bit more quickly here this time. But remember the account about the unjust judge who was finally willing to hear the widow because she kept coming. And then the Lord said, verse 6, Luke 18, 6, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God's, God not avenge his own elect? Who are the elect? Who cry out, put your heart in your prayers, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You see, indicating that there probably won't be as much faith as there should be. Jesus Christ predicted that. But he does tell us that his elect, which should be all of us, cry out to him fervent prayer night and day. We put our hearts in our prayers on a regular basis. And God tells us then, brethren, uh, back in uh, James, if you turn back to the book of James, uh, chapter uh, chapter 5 and verse 16, after telling us that be anointed with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick. In the earlier verses, he says in verse 16 of James 5, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer, not just any old prayer, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. That doesn't mean you're perfect. No one would ever have their prayers answered if we had to be perfect. I certainly wouldn't. Mr. Armstrong wouldn't. None of us have been perfect. But if you're sincere, you're growing, you trust in God, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he gives the example of Elijah praying it wouldn't rain and didn't rain for three years because of the prayer of that man. So God shows prayer is powerful. And that's a tremendous key, obviously, to building faith. If you learn to pray regularly and then you get answers more regularly, you drink into the Bible, you feed on the Bible, then you meditate on the Bible, you meditate on what God has been doing in prophetic events, what He's doing even now as we talk in prophetic events, what He's done in these big major prophecies. You see, God is real. Meditate on that. Meditate on the modern healings and blessings. And then you pray and pray and pray, and then you need to fast. And fasting is a tremendous key to faith. And I think most of you know that, that we've got to build that and exercise that key. So I hope that all of us can learn about that. Back in Mark, if you turn back to the book of Mark, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we find out here why uh, Jesus cast out this demon and the disciples were not able to cast it out. They were not able. And in Mark 9, verse 28, and when he had come to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Some of you may have a modern version that leaves out the words and fasting. I just want to assure you, I have checked into that thoroughly. Fasting was in the majority text and the received text. The text is, is correct. Prayer and fasting. So understand that. And the same thing is in Matthew 17, verse 21. We need to fast and get on our knees and do without food even beyond the Day of Atonement. About once a month if you're in good health, just do without food and just cry out to God and spend extra time in praying, studying, meditating, trying to get in touch with the invisible God. And cut yourself off from your television and your Internet for a while. Think about what's important in life, the invisible God. We've got to get this work moving. We've got to get our lives moving. We've got to get the church of God close to God to have the power we need to shake this modern generation, brethren. This nation is in trouble. Somewhere on this earth, there have got to be a people of God who have faith in God. And I hope it can learn to be us. So we need to be prepare for that. 
So we need to have fervent prayer and fasting. And finally, brethren, the final thing is the fourth key is exercise faith. You build a muscle by exercising it. And as you exercise faith, you know that you would grow in faith. You see the answer and then faith grows. So learn to exercise faith and walk by faith in every single part of your life. And that's what God wants you and me and all of us to do. And uh, I want to give you one example from Mr. Armstrong's booklet. Here he talks a number of times in his autobiography, and I've heard him talk in person about George Mueller. Some of you have heard of George Mueller. He was a Protestant, but a very sincere, independent Protestant, kind of like Abraham Lincoln. He really went straight to God, and he was not... Uh, all into, into churchianity. He trusted in God in a remarkable way. And he raised up five orphanages in and around Bristol, England, and they had thousands of young people he was taking care of. He must have sent out hundreds of co-worker letters, right? Nope. He never sent out anything. He just got on his knees and prayed and prayed and prayed, and he was a remarkable example of faith. So uh, he tells us, Mr. Armstrong does in his booklet on faith. The example of George Mueller was inspiring to him. He also used George Mueller's definition of faith as absolutely true and reliable. As stated on page 8, if you want to look it up later, of Mr. Armstrong's 1952 booklet on what is faith, here is George Mueller's definition of faith. Notice, brethren, here it is. It quotes, Faith is the assurance that the things which God has said in His Word are true and that God will act according to what He has said in His Word. This assurance, this reliance on God's Word, this confidence is faith. End of quotation. So, brethren, that is George Mueller's definition of faith and one that Mr. Armstrong used. And throughout the book that Mr. Armstrong tells us, he says that these, these, these people that came to him from the church of God that caused his wife to be healed of five or six things all at once were just a, apparently just a layman and his wife. And they were very humble people and they kneeled down by her bedside when Mrs. Armstrong had this raging fever and several things. You read about it in his autobiography, volume one. And he was struck by the fact he was new in the truth himself. They kept saying, Father, you have promised Father, you have promised. You've promised to heal. You hold God to His promises. And yes, you'll know there are exceptions. God says, according to your faith. He tells us that. He tells us the Apostle Paul besought God three times and he told Paul, no. There are times God may tell us no. But the vast majority of times, God does not tell us no. And if we're near the end of our lives... You know, God may let us die. I've told you that about me. I don't want anyone to say, well, you didn't have any faith. Maybe I don't, but that's not for you to figure out. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but you know what I mean. I don't want anyone to fall away because of what happens to me because I'll be 79 years old in less than two months, you see. So God has already given me a long life. I don't want that to hinder your faith at all. But I want to build your faith because I have seen and I have had a degree of faith because I've seen what God has been doing for the last 60 years since I was a 19-year-old kid. I have seen these things happen before my eyes. And I've seen that old man tell things, and they've happened, and they've happened, and they've happened. And I've seen things in this book, and they have happened. 
God is real and God backs up His Word. So there are times exceptions because of certain circumstances that God may know or if we're at the end of our life. I guess you know if you got to be uh, 79 and I, I will be and then you say, well, God, give me some more. And then He gives you another 10 years. And then at 89, you say, well, give me some more. And then you get to be 99 and He says, give you some more. He says, okay, it's time for you to know what I mean. At some point, people die, all right? So we can figure those things out. But normally speaking, I have seen that people who trust in God are healed, they are blessed, they are guided, and God works with them. And if it is His time for them to die, that they have finished their course, they've done their work, He knows what's best in certain cases, that's up for Him to decide. But let's have faith in God. The vast majority of people who put their faith and trust in God for healing should be healed. They should be healed, and they will be healed if we develop this atmosphere in faith. And the atmosphere of faith is not just for healing, though. That's obviously on my mind for reasons that you cannot understand. <laughs> but uh, I'm kidding. But, you know, it permeates every phase of our lives. We've got to raise our children by faith. We've got to be faithful to our wife. We've got to be faithful to our husband. Even though the husband is not perfect, by faith we know we must do our part. By faith, we know that we must do the best we can at our job because God tells us to. By faith, we should obey God's laws in every way because we know it's best. It's right. It's true. It comes from the great God. We walk by faith in every phase of our lives. Then when the trials come, the great tribulation, which is so great, there's never been a time like it nor ever shall be. And it's described back here. And it's just ahead of us. And I know you know that. And so we need to understand that fact, brethren, this tribulation is going to be within the next perhaps 7 to 17 years or whatever. We don't know the dates. We don't know the exact dates. But Jesus said, Mark 13, 19, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of creation, which God has created until this time, no nor ever shall be. Never been a time like that even since creation, there will be trials. You and I need to build faith and to walk and live by faith in every single part of our lives. May God help us to build that faith, to build a, be a people of faith and have that faith radiated the way we approach the work and do the work and trust God no matter what and walk by faith. And then God will back us up in many, many ways and you will see that we are really blessed to the degree that we obey God and put our faith and trust in God and walk and live by faith.